My name is Steve Saint. My wife, Ginny, is responsible for uh, most of our grandchildren, except that I bribed our daughter-in-laws. And uh, for those of you who don't have grandchildren and want them, that works. The only thing is I forgot to tell our kids that the first grandchild belongs to the grandparents. Bad mistake. Don't make the same mistake. Okay, we're, we're going to try something new here tonight, and you don't know what we're supposed to do, and I don't know what we're supposed to do. So whatever we come out with becomes the tradition for these uh, GMHC conferences in the future. So even if it doesn't work, pretend like it does when we go out, we all say, oh, that was the greatest group I've ever spoken to. And you say something like, he's kind of old, but you know, he's, he's still got a little bit little bit going for him. Okay, guys, I look for clues on how to do missions every place I go, and I found a great source. Uh, Jenny and I were watching a movie that somebody loaned us the other night. It's called Diary of a Mad Black Woman. You've seen it. You have seen it, haven't you? That isn't an Amish movie. I was watching this, and and in the middle of this, I mean, there was this terrible scene where this fella is dragging his wife of 18 years out of this huge mansion, throws her outside the door because he uh, has found another woman. And uh, so his wife of 18 years goes home. I mean, she's defeated. She, She just doesn't know what to do. Life is over. But she goes home, and her... uh, aunt, I think it is, her her mother's sister says, what? He threw you out? Did you shoot him? And she looks like, what do you mean shoot him? She pulls this big old pistol out of her purse and she says, I mean, did you shoot him? And then she offers her sage advice on how to treat a husband who has just thrown you out. I hope we're not getting too personal here, but that wasn't the part. That's just, I'm just telling you the setup. Now, this is about missions, okay? And... Uh, So then she says, come on, we're going to go teach him. So they go back to the mansion, and uh, this aunt begins to teach her niece how to deal with a, uh, should we call him, wayward husband. And when when they're in the house, now this is before she takes, she decides that finally the aunt decides that they should divide all the property. So she cuts everything in two with a chainsaw. (laughs) That's a great scene. But I'm not going to play that one for you. But I really wanted you to see the scene about when they go in and the aunt is teaching the the, uh, niece how to deal with a situation like this. And in the middle of that, I realized this is so about missions. So, okay, we start with the aunt and the uh, daughter... Uh, the aunt and the niece driving in through the. Uh, now this is this is their mansion. I think you'll understand. No, I don't think you'll understand. But but try to see missions in this. This is about missions. Take my word for it. Dolls, 
Um, I'll try to beep those out, but I didn't. This man left you. The attitudes in this movie do not necessarily reflect those of this church or myself. <laughs> okay, no. Here it goes. That's missions. Here it comes, here it comes. This is the point. This is the point. That's good. Hey, I'd love to play the rest of the movie, but there's not enough time. Now, I have to admit, now, I'm probably going to ruin my reputation, but this is really me. I saw this, guys, and I thought, that is so, so, so relevant to an awful lot of things that we do in missions. I mean, she says, rip it, rip it, rip it. And then what a classic line. She says, Wait a minute, what good is this going to do? And the answer is, it's not going to do any good. But you feel so much better when you rip it. Guys, an awful lot of what we've been doing in missions is not not constructive for the kingdom. We do it because it feels good. You know, the Waurani, and, and this is hard for people to get in this culture to get their minds around, but uh, did any of you see End of the Spear? You know the scene when when, uh, his name was Nankiwi. I don't remember what they called him in the movie, but but Nankiwi um, is being speared and he knows he's going to die and he asks to be buried alive and now in the movie they just scratch out a little a little hollow in the ground. In real life, what they would do is they would dig a square hole and Nankiwi climbed down into it. This this really happened. And then when he got down in the hole, they were going to put uh, split bamboo or split chonta. It's a, it's a tree that they hack and, you know, they make kind of like an open woven board. And they'd put that over the hole and then they'd cover dirt on top of that. And then the person inside would suffocate, but, you know, sometimes it would take hours to do. But the tradition was that if a man was being buried, that he had the right to ask that his children be buried alive with him. Now, what they didn't show in End of the Spear, they showed him asking for his son, who is Tamanta, who today is an elder in the uh, Waurani Church. And for those of you who don't know, I there's another movie. It's not this one. There's another movie. Well, I have to let you see it. But... Um, what they didn't what they didn't show in the movie is that before Epa, who is a dear sweet woman, before she ran off with Tementa, she did bury her four year old daughter alive with her bleeding dying husband, and they wouldn't let them show that, or or they were going to give them an R rating in the movie. But you know when when people hear 
that somebody would willfully want to be buried alive in our culture it just it just doesn't compute it's like trying me trying to explain golf to minkai it it just doesn't work in that other culture but you know what that's how the waurani lived when a, when somebody knew that they were going to die they were more afraid of dying and not being buried than they were of being buried alive so they would ask to be buried alive so that they would know that they were buried and a lot of times with their kids epa this sweet sweet woman she took her four-year-old daughter and not wanting her to suffer you know being buried in a dark tomb with her father who was bleeding and and was and was moaning and groaning she took her and strangled her this was her own little four-year-old daughter strangled her and then put her in the grave with her husband and you know what? When Ginny and I went back after my Aunt Rachel died and we're living out in the jungles, um, some people came to our little hut out there in the jungles one night and uh, they said, um, Nang is a, a friend of mine, an old friend of mine. He said, Nang mother is dead. And I said, really? He had old, old mother, sweet old lady. She, she would always tell me spearing stories. She, she'd show me wounds that she had where she had been speared and she'd explain how she had sat for three months one time with two spear wounds she had been speared one had gone in her side and had the spear broken off on her hip another one had gone right through her abdomen and she sat there they broke the spears off and she sat for three months every day she would um, run hot water from the fire on it and then she'd pack it with uh, clay like the clay that they made pots on um, but when I heard that she was dead, I asked what happened, and, and they said, Nange burying her, she died. I said, well, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Nange buried, you mean dying, Nange buried her. And they said, no, burying, Nange burying her, she died. And then they explained to me that Nange's teenage son had gotten hepatitis. He had turned yellow, and, uh, and he just died suddenly. And in the grief of having to bury his teenage son, Nange, my friend, went and took his son's body, and as he was passing his mother's hammock, he said, I want you being buried to die with my son. And so he dug two holes, put his son in one, and right next to it with just a little dirt barrier, he put his mother in the other one, they covered them up, and he buried his mom. And, and I asked, I said, his mother going to be buried, how did she see it? You know, I mean, didn't she, didn't she object? Did, I mean, like this scene. I mean, what, what do you mean? He just threw you out after 18 years and you just went? You didn't shoot him? You didn't tear the thing up? You didn't take a chainsaw out of the house? I mean, you're not going to take that, are you? And you know what they said to me? They said, his mother seeing it well. She was buried and died. Now, what in the world would make somebody choose to be buried alive? There's probably nobody in this room that can imagine that happening. When, when I realized that this was in the mid-1990s, my friend, I mean, this, this kid grown up to be a man that I had known for all these years had participated in this, he took his mother and buried her alive with his son who had died of hepatitis. 
And you know what? That stretched my cultural adaptation beyond what I could reason. Do you know what? That's the kind of thing that we do in missions. We do it all the time. We do what feels good to us without even asking ourselves, is this productive for the kingdom? Or without asking ourselves, is this what we're supposed to be doing? Let me... uh, but let me read you a couple of verses, and then we're gonna, and then I'm gonna ask you some questions. Um, our topic is empowerment. Let me read you an example of empowerment from uh, Acts one, starting with verse four, and then five, and then eight. It says, and gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. What, were, what did he tell them to wait for? Why did he tell them to wait? Because they couldn't go do what what he asked them to do yet, right? Because they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. So it says, uh, and then Jesus says, uh, he said, you heard it from me for John baptized with water, but you guys are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the world. And this is recorded for us here because that's true of us too. Guys, we are called and we are commissioned to be God's ambassadors to the remotest parts of the earth. But we too need to have power if we're going to go out and do this. Now let me, let me jump over here to Proverbs This is Proverbs 13, verse 22. It says, a good man, and it's cross-gender, a good man or woman leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Um, Now, I'm thinking a lot about that these days with really almost 16 grandchildren. We're multiplying like rabbits. And, of course, that is only if one of these sets isn't, isn't a set of twins, which really hope for have. Oh, I can't tell you about my darling grand, two granddaughters, um, the twins. I did tell you about them, didn't I? Oh, I hope you guys have twins. Now, let me read you, let me read you from a little different version of the Bible. You guys know that I like this, the, the, the Jesus book. And uh, by the way, I'm waiting for my first copy of the Before Jesus book. It's coming. It's done. It says, this is Jesus here. It says, for those of you who haven't heard anything from this version, this is in a language that you didn't know that you knew. This is Hawaiian pidgin. This is the New Testament translated by uh, Wycliffe. And uh, right at the very end of Matthew, it says, so you guys, that's you guys, you guys go all over the world and teach all the different people so they can learn about me and come my guys. Baptize them and they're going to come tight with my father and with me, his boy, and God's good and special spirit. Teach them how to do everything I went and tell you guys to do. And you know what? Let's try that again. And you know what? I'm going to stick with you guys all the way till the world go pow. This is what Christ told us to do. He told us to go and make disciples 
That's our commission. Our commission isn't to go and spread the gospel. That's, that's not enough. That's part of it, but that's not the commission. The commission is that we're supposed to go and make disciples everywhere. Now, when we hear disciples, it's like me trying to describe people going to the moon down in the jungles. You know, everybody's picturing a different kind of vehicle. They're, they're picturing, everybody's picturing airplanes because nothing's faster than an airplane down there. And trying to explain, I really, we had this conversation one night and everybody was asking me questions and they wanted to know what kind of an airplane. I said it wasn't an airplane. Airplanes are too slow and everybody's thinking, airplanes are too slow. And then I told them that there was no air out there. So the wings didn't work. They didn't know wings and air had anything to do with each other anyway. But uh, then somebody said, there's no air out there. And I could hear some people talking in the background. They're saying, have you ever seen any place with no air? Nobody had ever, ever conceived of any place without air. And then, they, then somebody questioned me and said, well, if there's no air, how do those foreigners who are going to the Apaika place, to the moon, how do they breathe? And I said, oh, they have, these, they have this big cloth and it covers over them all of them, and it has air inside, and they breathe the air in there. And then one of them said, and what happens if they pass gas? <laughs> and I didn't know. So I had to go research, and I didn't have Internet. Actually, I did have a point here. There are some things that we just don't understand because we skip over and we don't look at it. Disciple, when is the last time that we really thought about what a disciple is? You know what a disciple is? A disciple is somebody who willingly follows somebody and are able to do it on their own without having... I mean, it's not like pushing the stroller or even pulling the stroller. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is when you, when you train somebody so that they can do whatever it is that you are teaching them to do by themselves. And listen to this in, um, in John 15... Jesus explains it. First he says, you guys are the branches, but, but I'm the vine. If you want to bear fruit, you've got to stay tied into me. And then he gives them two warnings. The, the first is the worst one. He says, if you guys don't bear fruit, my father who is the husbandman, he's going to cut you off because you have no use to me. And then the second one is a little less harsh. But he says, and if you do bear fruit, then my father the husbandman is going to prune you so that you'll bear more fruit. And then look what he says in verse 8. He says, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You know what the proof of discipleship is? Is that the disciple bears fruit. And Jesus told us back, back in Matthew 28, he said, All authority has been given to me. You go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Make disciples of all the nations. Don't just go and and give them the gospel, but go and disciple them. And then to make sure that we understood it, in verse 20, he said, And you teach them how to do everything what I wouldn't tell you guys to do. And then he gave them the promise. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, You didn't choose me, guys. I chose you, and I appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that your fruit should last. You know how fruit lasts? It's when we pass on what we've learned about bearing fruit, about being tied into the vine, when we pass that on to other people. And you know what? This is the amazing thing that I've learned about being a grandfather 
is I am now seeing my grandchildren emulating the lifestyle that I tried, that Ginny and I tried so hard to to pass on to our children. And you know what? I'm not passing it on to my grandchildren. Oh, I'm a little part of it, but my grandchildren are getting it from my children. And you know what? I'm realizing that if you really want to know the merit of a person, check out their grandchildren because they might be able to coerce their children into into doing and living like they want them to live. But you know what? If their children feel pressed into it, they will not pass it on to the next generation. But if the inheritance that we pass on goes through our children to our grandchildren, that really is the proof of our discipleship. It isn't so much the fruit that we bear, it's the fruit that our disciples bear, and even more the fruit that our disciples' disciples bear. It's our spiritual grandchildren that prove whether we have done Christ's Great Commission. Now, that's my piece. Now, I want to ask you, we used to, we used to play this little, uh, this little game when we were kids. It was like this. Would you rather slide down a 50-foot razor blade into a pool of iodine, or would you rather jump off a tall building and catch your nose on a nail? <laughs> I'm sorry to say those are the only two that I remember. Those really caught my attention, but there are other ones. But, you know, this either, this either or deal, this is my question for you. And then, and then I've got some that I want you to discuss at your tables. Um, would we rather, now this is really us, just us in this room, and what's said in this room stays in this room, including Diary of a mad black woman, if you say that I played that in here, I will have to deny it. (laughs) Unless you watch it with me. Would we rather, in missions, would we rather do more of the same because it's cultural and because it feels good? Just rip it. Rip it. It doesn't matter if it does any good. Just rip it because it feels so good. Guys, we're going to have to give an answer someday for for what we did in this. So would we rather do more of the same in missions or would we rather obey Christ if the two are not the same? Would we rather feel good or do good? And here's my question for you. If empowerment is scriptural, and if it isn't, and guys, I've been reading this book my whole life but I keep finding stuff that's been in there the whole time I have read over and never seen. I've read over and thought I understood, and I don't. then suddenly I realize I didn't have a clue what it was about. So I'm not absolutely sure, but I keep seeing places where Jesus' commission is, is explained. It's explained in the example of the disciples, what they went out and did. How many of you have ever heard of any of the disciples having thousands of people following them and doing some big miracle like Jesus did? I mean, big crowd, big publicity. It's not there, is it? You know what they did? They were 11 common, ordinary men, men, and and then there were women and followers of Christ. And I think the reason that Jesus must have chosen Judas as one is that he knew that we would, we would goof up. We would choose the wrong kinds of friends. We would associate ourselves, or we might even be the Judas. We might be the one that would, that would really, really mess up big time. I think he chose guys that he knew were not the sharpest tacks in the box because he knew that his plan 
for winning the world would work without having to have superheroes involved. And so he took 11 men and he sent them out and they went out and they began to disciple people who discipled people who discipled people. And that's where we came from. That's where we got our faith. It came to us through faithful people who learned to pass it on. Now, my question is to you is, if empowerment is scriptural, why don't we do it? Because I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, the honest truth is that we, we in the North American church, oh, we do it sometimes, but more by accident than we do on purpose. And it doesn't make any sense that we not go out and empower people because it... Christ's commission, isn't, it's a multiplication strategy. It isn't just an added on. We do need evangelists like Billy Graham and Luis Palau. That is part of it. But you know, where, you know where the bread and butter is? It's moms and dads raising their children to be God followers and raising them so that they can raise children and doing the same thing that they're doing, you know, physically doing the same thing spiritually. This is my question to you for your table. If empowerment is scriptural, why don't we do it? But let's get more personal. On a personal level, why don't I do it more? Why don't you do it more? And on an agency level, for those of us who are, who are part of an agency or ascending or part of a church, I hope all of us are part of a church, why don't our churches talk about empowerment? Why don't we celebrate empowerment? Because we don't. You know, I was just go off on a tangent a little bit, but get, get ready to discuss this in your groups. Um, one of the things that we've been doing at iTech, the Indigenous People's Technology and Education Center, is designing a flying car. Why not, right? Um, some of you have seen the accompanying movie, uh, Beyond the Gates of Splendor, that was made by the same people who made End of the Spear. And at the very end... I love the way that they end it. They end it with that little boy who is going to be buried alive, whose mother, by the way, took him off into the jungles. And what she said to the people was, bah, no. I say, you dying, you speaking to her husband, Nankiwi, you dying, who's going to bring me meat? And so she took her little son and ran off with him so that when he grew up, he would be able to hunt for her. You know, it was that little boy, Tamenta, that used to go to Aunt Rachel's house and listen to Aunt Rachel and Dayuma telling Bible stories. And that little boy had no clue what he was hearing, but he went home and he related the stories to his mother. And Epa became one of the, one of the first believers amongst the Waurani, led to the Lord by her little boy who was, going to be, who was going to be buried alive. And she saved him alive so that he could bring her really not meat. It, what she was saying is, I'm going to save him alive so that when you're dead, he can bring me nourishment. And that little boy, without even knowing what the message was, just went and repeated it to her, and that's how Epa came to faith. And the Waurani chose that little boy, grown up, to be their first pilot. The only pilot, the only person in the entire history of the Waurani tribe who has ever flown by himself. And they ended the Beyond the Gates of Splendor, that dramatic documentary that goes along with End of the Spear. They ended it with Tamantha flying by, and those of us on the ground... I mean, it just happened. I didn't even know they were taking, but we just kind of saluted him because everybody called him Capitan Tementa, Captain Tementa. 
Tementa grew up to be an elder in the church, very, very capable speaker. There's a lot of things that Tementa and I've been up here. There's a lot of things that Tementa doesn't understand about this. There's a lot of things that we don't understand. But we're all commissioned to do the same thing. My question is, why don't we do it on a personal level, on an agency level, and on the field? Why don't we do it? Okay, guys, you got about five minutes to discuss it, and then I want all the answers, and we're going to pass around the mic so that you can share your wisdom with us. Two questions. One is, why don't we do it personally, agency level? And then the second, the second question is more important, is what are you and what am I willing to do differently to see that we carry out Christ's great commission, which is to make disciples, which means that we empower them. We pass on this power to them because remember, this is just like family. In missions, in the, in the family of Christ, it's supposed to be just like our families. One day, my grandchildren are going to be taking care of me. In fact, it's already happened. My three-year-old granddaughter, Rosie, climbed up on my lap one day when I was trying to do something on the computer. And she said, no, people, like this. And she started moving the mouse and showing me how to do it. Now, I did know how to do the mouse better than she did, I think. But that was three months ago. Okay. I think I've been there before. I'm still there. I know when I'm at, I'm a ministry uh, missions team leader at our church. Mm -hmm. And probably 10 years ago was our first mission trip. We went out to the Navajo Reservation. And I've done some studying, of course, being kind of mission-minded. But, I mean, I've gone through such a learning curve. When we went out there, I thought, gosh, they don't really seem too thrilled to see us, you know. I thought they were excited about us coming. I was excited, you know. And it was it was a really rude awakening. And I've done some humanitarian-type trips before, teaching and different things. But all of a sudden, it, it you know, it was like a bolt. It was kind of like, well, why would they be thrilled for us to be there? You know, I mean, they appreciated us giving them money. They appreciated the monetary value of us being there. But they didn't have, and we helped them build. I mean, we did all these things. And within the last two years, we pulled our support because we've seen, just like, of course, we've also used <coughs> your book, the, the Great Omission. We've used that as a, a tool for our team to read and study. We've realized that that we did not empower them. We were leading to their dependency. They were depending too much on us. And I don't think they get it. The Christians there don't get it on the reservation, let alone. So they're not empowering their own people, and we didn't empower them at all. Becomes a, it becomes a, a vicious cycle. Vicious cycle and of I think they've been in that cycle on the Native American side for years and years just through our government let alone the Christian aspect, but because the missionaries used to just pull them away and not let them have their own culture. Right. You know, they, the, we've had people there tell us that they 
you know, they couldn't speak their own language. When they would, t would take them to a boarding school, you know, they couldn't speak their own native tongue. They all had to have the same haircut. You know, it, it's all that sort of thing. So it's, it's happening right here still, <laughs> you know. And it's, yeah, it's exactly, you know. So I think for us, it's been a learning process. You have to get beyond that feel-good stage, that, uh, you know, beyond the Boy Scout doing good stage, you know. Beyond trying to get the next badge. Yeah, yeah, you kind of have to get beyond that. that anybody can do that. You have to have the love of Jesus Christ as your, your focus. And that was for us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a missionary, and we just got back from Kazakhstan. We're doing, we're doing three years, you know, three and a half years. And um, I went, my wife and I went over there. She's a medical doctor, and, and uh, my ministry was yet to be determined. I was still finishing up my theology studies, but uh, we went to Kazakhstan, and um, I had to not only finish up my theology, but learn a new language, because they, they're not speaking, they don't speak English, so I had to learn Russian, uh, do my theology, learn a new culture, build a relationship, and, and do all of this in the time that we're there, and my eyes were really opened up, and that's why I appreciate, you know, what you guys did, because I can, you know, relate somewhat about being in a culture that you don't know the language and you're having to take baby steps and really learn and depend on not only God but on others to help you to uh, uh, build confidence to go out and to be able to speak uh, a language that is not easy to learn. No. <laughs> yeah. in, our, in our church on a local level, I feel like there's a small group of us that kind of understand the dependency issue in missions mm -hmm. and, you know, not wanting to make people more dependent, but make empower them. But I think the average person in our church, and I think that's the problem with a lot of the churches, I think they're just so caught up in themselves that they're not seeing beyond, I, I don't know, and maybe it's just our church. I don't think it is, though. You know, I, you know, it's like we keep trying, you know, to be outward, you know, not inward. But, um, the whole dependency thing is a real yeah. issue. Working with uh, my ministry now is that I work with a church-based drug and alcohol rehab program in Kazakhstan. And one of the things that I realized that we're all sent. God, you know, God gave me a calling, um, and I went. And I soon realized that even though we're called to the ends of the ends of the earth, you know. Uh, to all nations, we have to get in there and just not expect it to happen, but we have to really get our hands dirty. We have to really get in there, and uh, I, I learned that being an American and going to a third world country, that 
the values that I learned growing up in America do not apply in somebody else's culture. You cannot. You have to learn their values, their culture, and and reach them on their level. And that's where a lot of a lot of people, a lot of missionaries that I've seen fail to do. They fail to try to Americanize the people that they're trying to witness to, and they're failing. Uh, I work in a, uh, I'm a pediatric physical therapist, I just do administrative, but I, I work in a, fortunately, a facility here in town that um, there's quite a few Christians there, and uh, several of them went on their first mission trip to uh, Ukraine a few years ago, and I kept trying to kind of lead them beforehand, but they, they, uh, they were saying that, uh, that they just couldn't, they, I, I feel like they were the shirts that you want to show it. But yet they didn't understand. Okay, we're going to continue this kind of discussion. You know, that kind of matter what you're doing. If you want to use it, I've got it. Okay. That may be better than those pictures. Okay. They were wrapped up in the therapy part of the trip and not really going as a true disciple, but I, I kind of related it to one of them, you know, they're kind of in that, I call it the, um, the first stage is, they'll give you the shirt off their backstage, you know, a first time tripper, <laughs> but they don't understand that you might not be able to do that, you might not be able to always give them the shirt, you know, you've got to somehow teach them how to And it might not, might not help them to do that. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, do you guys have some, uh... Some things that you'd like to uh, suggest to the group, either as to what you see as the problem, the, the hurdle, the objection that we find to doing missions, to empowering other people as our disciples rather than doing for them, or or the part of the solution. What what are you willing to do differently? In the future. Now, remember, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna tell anybody outside this room what you tell us. Promise. Is this being recorded? Okay, I'm sorry, I broke the promise. If you say stop here, they won't put anything on. Okay. We'll say just say off the record if it's something really personal and you want to make an admission to us and uh, you don't want it to be broadcast. Okay. All right. Who's gonna break the ice? Because remember, we're setting a tradition here. So even if you don't feel like there's something you should do, maybe you still want to make some great admission or share some great, deep point of wisdom with us. Oh, we got number uno. We're breaking the ice. Yes. Break it. Rip it. Rip it, man. Rip it. It feels good. Now remember, nobody says anything about that movie when you leave here because I will have to deny it. Uh, in our discussion, we talked about letting go of our own culture in order to help them in another culture. Uh, often when we start talking about short-term mission trips and how they're focused on a task, we're very uh, task-oriented. We're, we worry about the success or the failure of the mission, and we don't take time to develop relationships and in those relationships, we can uh, teach them something that they in turn can pass on to someone else. 
It may be a physical task. It may be a spiritual uh, gem that we can pass on to them, but do it in such a way that they can pass it on to others. Uh, often, there is no personal investment. Uh, we're there to build a building or to paint something. or you know, They can build. They can paint. And we need to develop the relationships in such a way that we can give them something that they can keep for themselves. Can I share? Can I share an example of that? I've had, as I travel around, I've had hundreds of people come and tell me, thinking that it'll just bring great joy to my heart, that they've been down and seen Palm Beach. That's what my dad and his friends referred to the little beach where Dad landed his plane. It's because there's a whole bunch of a whole grove of palms. I found out when I started flying down there that that grows in that part of the jungle. And what I started asking people when they would tell me, I've been to Palm Beach, I would ask them who they met there. And almost never can anybody tell me. You know why I asked them that? Because the Waurani would ask me, believers and non-believers would ask me, who are these people that keep coming in and go down to see the Imoniah, the sand, saying, these are the people that killed the missionaries? I mean, it's demeaning, it's humiliating for them. And then they ask me, are these possibly God followers? What am I supposed to say? I mean, I don't know, so I feigned ignorance. I don't know. But they were coming in the mission plane. And then they say, if these are God followers, why won't they come and talk to us? Why won't they come and worship God with us in our God's house? Why won't they come to the church? And why won't they come to our house and drink? Plant and drink. Uh, Paname. That's because that's what you do when you meet somebody out there. These people come in, they land in the little airstrip, they walk down, they get a sample of sand, they pray and sing some stuff, and then they walk and get in their plane and go, and they don't know anything about the people that were right there. Now, I can understand because I am a doer. I love to do stuff. This book talks about us being who we're supposed to be way before it talks about us doing what we're supposed to do. It happens all the time. It's about people. I can tell you Palm Beach is about people. It's not about sand. The sand isn't there anymore. The sand is washed down. The, the river's changed course. The, there's still a beach there, but it's not the same beach. It's not in the same place. But the people, the same people that were there when my dad and his friends were killed are still there. It's about the people. Just one other thing we had talked about, or just mentioned, maybe restructuring short-term missions. You know, the, the little tool, the Evangelicube, what a fantastic thing that is. Take it and give it to somebody and teach them how to use it. They can share it with others, and that can give you generations of uh, disciples. Good, thank you. Somebody else. You can be part of the tradition, even if you are Amish. I'm not Amish. Oh, but you live where the Amish live. But you're at the Amish table. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Guilt by association. Um, we discussed a little bit about um, um, pride. Um, if sometimes we feel threatened, if we teach them and we empower them, they won't need us anymore. And so there's a sense of pride of, you know, we won't be, we won't be useful. They won't need us. And there's a sense, in in a way, of superiority of feeling like we have the answers. And if now we give them the answers, they won't need us anymore. You make an excellent point. You know, there are two reasons, and I'm not sure which is which is the greater reason why 
why we don't pass on to people, especially in frontier areas, people that aren't like us, that we don't empower them to, to become ministers of the gospel. You know what one reason is? We don't think they can. You know what the second reason is? They don't think that they can. Because we don't think that they can. All right, somebody else. I see that hand. We were discussing the fact that it's essentially opportunity cost, the amount of time it takes to mentor someone. But we also were discussing the book Jesus CEO, which is an excellent book to talk about um, essentially mentoring the next disciples, how, how to get them actively involved and uh, essentially hand off the torch. You know, somebody talked to D.L. Moody one day and was just praising him about all the people that he had spoken to, all the people that he had led to Christ, and what a great man he was, and all the things he had done. And when he got all done, D.L. Moody said, that's nothing. I know another man who has led more people to Christ than D.L. Moody has. This is D.L. Moody speaking. He's spoken to more people. He's preached the gospel to more people. And he's done more of this. And he went through the litany of all these things that this person, this person just sat there just in amazement and said, there's no way. Somebody could have done more than you, D.L. Moody, have done because I would know about them. And he named the Sunday school teacher that led him to Christ as a little boy. And he said, that Sunday school teacher that nobody's heard about has done more than D.L. Moody can ever do. Good point. Yes? I guess to uh, piggyback on the relationship and the pride thing, there's also, and I, I don't think it's malicious at all, but... You know, you go on a short-term mission trip and, and you're excited and you think what you're going to do to help these people without realizing that they're really going to give back to you so much more than you can ever give to them. And for me, the first time I went, that was a realization when I got there, to find out that these people's faith was so much stronger than mine or the people that I knew back here in the States and that I had so much to learn from other people. And in doing a short-term mission trip, if you can get the rest of your team members to understand that or at least to go initially with that kind of a mindset, um, you know, sometimes that's, that can really change things or at least have them be open to it. So when that aha moment happens, they understand what's, what's going on there. I remember the terrible frustration, yes. I remember the terrible frustration I had that my mom wanted me to wait until I was 14 to start driving. And I already knew how to drive at 6. I really knew how to drive at 8. I just couldn't understand that she didn't understand that I already knew how to do this. Now I look, my grandchildren are soon going to be... Did you know how I have almost 16 grand... Oh, I told you that earlier. Okay, yes. language, so please be patient with me. Um, I come from Mexico, and uh, we've had a lot of short-term mission trips to our place. And uh, I agree with what my brother said here that um, sometimes you're afraid of letting go of some things of your culture. And, um, and also, I don't remember who else said that uh, sometimes it's pride that feeling that you can, um, 
that you have all the answers and that you're going to reach ignorant people that can't do or you're going to teach the church how to you know do things and sometimes we just need friends you know helping with what we're doing in the church or um, whatever the, the medical brigades uh, one example is we have a medical brigade every year in our city or nearby and Nobody in the church is allowed, for, in our church, at my home church, is allowed to help because they have all the program, they have all the answers, and we can't help. You can't find disciples inside the church where you're going. You can't teach even the people from the church how to be a missionary in their own city. And sometimes we forget that we think that just um, forgotten or, or, you know, where the local people are from don't care about you can have great missionaries in the church and create not only a partnership but a close relationship with the chief the, the church members it would be very very difficult to know that English is not your first language <laughs> being it um, guys I had an experience when oh this must have been 20 years ago, um, my son Sean, Jenny's my oldest son, said one day, I was in the mining business and he was working in the scale house and um, Sean, I was giving him some instructions and he just, I mean, Sean was very complacent, always obedient and suddenly he just said, Pop, I can't work for you anymore. I can't work for you. And it was just, and, and this fear that I had that, one day my kids might rebel against me and I couldn't see it. I, I couldn't imagine it happening, but I saw it happening to other people. And, and suddenly in front of my eyes, I saw my son rebelling against me. And I went home and I was just, I mean, I was coming apart. I was thinking it happens to other people, but I always thought that they, you know, that must have been something came slowly and boom, here it is in our home. And I went home and I told Jenny about it and I was pouring out my heart thinking of, my son, Sean, that I just loved to pieces that was rebelling against me. And when I got all done explaining this to my wife, Jenny, Jenny said, Steve, have you noticed Sean's neck? Yeah. Jenny, what are you talking about? My son is beginning to rebel against me. How am I going to straighten this out? Oh, Jenny, please, please give me some. And she said, Steve, have you noticed his arms? And I'm thinking, what is this, an anatomy class? My son is rebelling. She said, Steve, did you see his Adam's apple is showing? I didn't have a clue what she was talking about. She said, Steve, have you seen? His muscles are starting to develop. And what she was saying is, Steve, this is natural. He's not rebelling against you. Just let, give him a little space. He's growing up. And then we were down in the jungles, and I was, I was digging for this little girl's tendon in her foot. Her brother had dropped his sharp axe on her foot, and it had sliced across the top of her foot. And I noticed that her, her big toe wasn't working right, and I knew because I have a friend down there who's, who, who got his tendon cut on his toe, and his toe curled under, and he kept you know, knocking it and kept getting infected. And finally, he almost lost his foot because his big toe was curling under. So I was looking for this little girl's tendon. And my son, Sean, just a, just a kid, was watching me do it. And Sean decided that that's what he'd like to do with his life. 
Um, he'd like to help people physically so he could help them spiritually. And you know what? I'm just waiting for Sean to invite me into his surgical suite because he's replumbing people. He does it mostly from here to here. And uh, cutting them open, he calls me and says, Oh, Pop, you should have seen what I did today. I took this and I connected this and I'm trying to imagine all these things he's doing. And uh, he said, and the, the, you know, the, they won't need the bag after a little while and, and we're just waiting for their... You know, the stuff to start happening, and uh, I'm thinking, this is that little kid. You know what? The children are grown up. They are growing up. And my sister and I have seen what many of you have not had a chance to see. You have not had a chance to feel how demeaning and how humiliating, how disenfranchising it is to love the Lord your God and to know that you're called into his service and to have people keep coming and doing in your community what you should be doing in your community, but people that you can't compete with. I have to leave right at 6 o'clock. They said that they're going to cut the mic off and somebody's going to come in here. Jerry, he's a, he's a forensic accountant. There he is. He looks complacent, but he's really mean. But... <laughs> Before we go and before we end this tradition, could I just play for you a short clip of a, of a video series that we've made? We made right here in the church with people like you about missions. But what we did is we went around and we interviewed people from around the world and asked them, if you could give us in the North American church a piece of advice that would help us do missions better, more efficiently, more effectively, more obediently in your part of the world, what would it be? And this was their answer. And just in case I miss it, I started to tell you about celebration. Um, we've developed this flying car. You know what? Popular mechanics noticed it. They, they wrote an article in the May issue of Popular Mechanics about missionaries, about people, for God's sake, designing something like a flying car. Six-page article and three pages of it was about missions. They were more fascinated with the reason that we were wanting to build this flying car than they were even with the flying car. And then they paid our way for six of us from iTech to go to New York, and they paid to take this Maverick flying car. You can see it on our website, uh, www.itechusa.org, or go on uh, YouTube and look for flying car, Maverick. It's really the MAV, the Missionary Assault Vehicle, but we added the Erecto because we thought some people might be offended. But you know what? When they gave us a breakthrough award in New York, a scientist got up and he said, look at this room. Look at this room. We are talking about breaking breakthrough technologies. And he said, this is the future of our economy because we're no longer manufactured. And he said, if we were here celebrating tonight somebody that could bounce a ball and throw it through a hoop, we would need a civic arena to do this. He said, this is the peril that our country is facing today. He said, we become what we celebrate. Celebrate carefully. Let's celebrate empowerment. This is a little series that we call... The Missions Dilemma, we have some of them available. Wearing nothing but this and going to church. We have to learn to see things the way they see things. We're confusing culture and the gospel. I'm not anti-missionary. Quite the opposite. The isn't building buildings. And I say we do need to go back to the drawing board and find a better way to do what God is calling us to do. Author of the speaker, Steve Saint, knows missions from the inside out. He's yeah, part of the most famous missionary story of our time. 
his father and four missionary friends were killed by Indians in Ecuador in 1956. Steve has spent time on the mission field, supported him, and lived with the same Indians who killed his father. And in this area, he leads us on a journey to explore today's mission dilemma. I'm confident that if you can see and feel what it's like to have our North American missions done to you, you would want to reevaluate how you do missions to others. I have no our time is up. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being willing. I know that a lot of you have traveled all day to get here. Thank you for caring enough to come to this conference and thank you for coming here. I look forward to seeing more of you. We become what we celebrate. Let's celebrate empowerment. Thank you guys.